0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham, and this is the final episode of a series we are doing on the deconversion phenomenon that is taking place in our culture. The series was originally prompted by the public deconversion of Rhett and Link. Many of you know that. Um, if you're just jumping in and you don't know that, or you you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say deconversion, I would strongly suggest uh, that you first go back and listen to the other episodes. But to quickly recap, I am offering a defense of the Christian faith, not just to the deconverted, to those who have left the faith, but also to unbelievers, skeptics, and seekers alike. And to do so, I am using the framework of the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness. I have already argued for the truth and beauty of Christianity, and this is the second part of my argument for the goodness of Christianity. Now, the reason why I needed two episodes, is that Retin Link highlighted two objections that I think have risen to be the top objections to the goodness of Christianity in our culture. The first I already dealt with, and that was the judgment of God. Now I would like to take up the second one, and it is the sexual ethic of the Christian faith. Christianity can't be good because of Christianity's sexual ethic. Now for clarity's sake, when I say sexual ethic, I have in mind the historical sexual ethic of the Christian faith. I realize that many Christian traditions have modified over the past few decades, have modified the ethics of Christianity to fit with a more modern ethic that affirms LGBTQ values. But I am not going to insult anyone's intelligence by pretending the Bible says something other than what it says. It is what it is. The Bible teaches that sex is reserved for one man, one woman, within the safe confines of marriage covenant. And I don't think any honest biblical scholarship could come to a different conclusion. And therefore, for many, because of that one singular issue, and I I do think increasingly it is becoming as simple as that, because of this one singular issue, Christianity cannot be good and must be rejected. Friends, this is this is the issue above every issue in our culture. I can wax eloquently all I want about Christianity's truth, beauty, and goodness, but if Christianity is not LGBTQ affirming, then Christianity is not an option for many people in our culture. So let me take up the enormously important challenge of, at the very least, helping our culture understand where we're coming from, um, that, at the very least, for you to see what we're how, why we believe what we believe, but perhaps also even taking this issue off the table as a stumbling block to Christianity. Now, in my experience dialoguing about this issue, and I, I do have a lot of experience here, um, I think the only way for this not to be an objection to Christianity, the only way for that to be plausible in our cultural context is to step out. Side of our cultural context. From our perspective, the Christian ethic, far from being good, is downright evil. But would you be willing to consider other perspectives? Would you be willing to, just for a few minutes, step outside the 21st century Western plausibility structure and allow that plausibility structure to be challenged and critiqued from other perspectives? I want us to consider the credibility. The goodness of the Christian sexual ethic through the lens of four perspectives a historical sexual ethic, a diverse sexual ethic, a Western sexual ethic, and then the biblical sexual ethic. Let's start with history sexual ethic. When it comes to human sexuality, there is a huge myth that where we find ourselves is somehow the final frontier of progress. As if we have cast off the archaic and repressive norms of the past to finally arrive at the truest ethical understanding of sexuality. I call this the myth of progress, that history has just been progressing and progressing and progressing to figure out what is truly ethical, and here we are, and we finally have figured out what is truly ethical from a sexual standpoint. That's simply not true. What we believe, celebrate, and practice in our culture now is, in many ways, an ethical regression to antiquity. Consider, for example, the ancient Roman world, where early Christianity uh, found its origins. It was an exceedingly promiscuous context of unfettered sexual appetite. You want to talk about a progressive sexual ethic? Rome would make the hookup culture of our day blush. All forms of heterosexual, homosexual, any sexual expression were accepted. There was little to no adherence to marital fidelity. Orgies were normative. And most shockingly, men having adolescent boys as sexual partners was not just accepted but celebrated as kind of a mentoring rite of passage. And into that context emerges a weird ethic called Christianity, that viewed sex as a sacred reality reserved for man and woman within the covenant of marriage. Perhaps nothing was more countercultural about the early church to the Greco-Roman world than their sexual convictions and practices. This was a revolutionary ethic that ended up revolutionizing the world. Christians are viewed as so repressive when it comes to sex and sexuality And to some degree, that's a fair critique, as many Christians, including evangelicalism, have treated sex and sexuality as taboo at best and dirty at worst. But the Bible doesn't see it that way. The Bible views sex as both lovely and dangerous. Uh, Song of Solomon compares it to a burning fire, and I think that's a good picture. Uh, Fire is a good thing, but only within its proper boundaries. Fire properly ordered gives life to society. Fire unrestrained burns down society, and so it is with sex. Everyone needs to get familiar with Tom Holland and his work. Tom Holland is an atheist who is also a big believer in Christianity, (laughs) and no, I did not misspeak there. Uh, He's not a follower of Jesus, but he's a brilliant historian who believes Christianity, its worldview and ethic, are an undeniably positive advancement, historically speaking. Before his research, Holland had a um, naive love affair for antiquity. But the more he studied, the more he was aghast at pre-Christian morality. And then he traced the advancement of Christian monogamy and how that revolutionized sex and marriage and society. And he could not deny that this was a good advancement for humanity. He's not a Christian, but he is very outspoken that the Christian worldview was and is good for the world. The point I'm making is that what we are seeing in Western civilization is not progressive, but regressive, specifically a return to the sexual disarray before the Christian revolution. Now, of course, you can say that's what we need to return to. Christianity's sexual ethic ruined the world. But historically speaking, it's really tough to make that case. But either way, Let's not pretend that what we are seeking in our society is some new progressive ethic, nor is it a diverse ethic, which brings me to my next point. Let's consider a diverse sexual ethic. It's very interesting to record this while our world is lamenting and repenting of its racist past. Again and again, we are being told to listen, listen and learn from the black community, and I whole heartedly agree it's what I'm trying to do myself we don't know what we don't know we need to humble ourselves and we need to listen but may I be so bold to ask if that applies to the sexual ethic of the black community you do realize that the african-american community by far holds the most conservative views on sexuality and gender in our culture That's true across the board nationally, but becomes dramatically true of African-Americans not living on the coast, California, New York, particularly the Southern black population, the very ones who are historically the most oppressed people in America. Do we care what they think? Do American progressives care, not just about African-Americans, but about what African-Americans actually believe? Here is the hard truth. The sexual revolution is not a diverse revolution. Far from it. It is, by and large, a white, elite, academic, Western revolution. I talked about this in a previous podcast. This is the new frontier of Western imperialism and dominance. Powerful Western elites may not be conquering worlds anymore, but you better believe we are conquering worldviews. Do Westerners not realize that the vast majority of people and cultures on this planet subscribe to a different sexual ethic than ours? Do Westerners not realize that the rest of the world looks at our gender discussion and thinks that we have lost our collective minds? Do Westerners not see the arrogance of claiming That the past few decades of western civilization which radically overturned centuries old views of sex and gender is now the one true sexual ethic the harsh reality is that westerners don't see this westerners don't care to see this it's just we're right everyone else is wrong and we are going to colonize the rest of the world with our world view but to those outside the white west it just feels like the same old imperialistic story. In its harshest form, it is an aggressive purging of any competing ethic through hate speech legislation. In its milder forms, it is a patronizing hubris that views other cultures as helplessly archaic and in need of our sophisticated, educated, and enlightened sexual ethic. If Western elites are serious, About repenting of their imperialistic past, then it will actually require humility to listen and learn from other cultures. And I just don't think the West is capable of such humility. I believe the sexual revolution is far more important to Western elites than listening to what Africa, to what Asia has to say about sexuality and gender. I believe. The metropolitan centers of America could not care less what rural America thinks, what Southern African Americans think about sexuality and gender. And most of all, there is absolutely zero tolerance for the majority of the people on the planet who derive their sexual ethics from a religious ethical standard. And if your inclination is to say at this point, well, all these people are either behind the times or just outright bigots, then you are proving my point. That is oppressive arrogance at its finest. Which brings me to my next point. Let's evaluate the goodness of the current Western sexual ethic. Now, first, it must be stated that, yes, even the secular West has a sexual ethic. (laughs) The reason that is important to state is that the idea that we should not put boundaries on sexuality that we should embrace all sexual expressions. To judge another's sexual attraction is bigotry, and all of these things is a standard that even the sexual revolution itself cannot maintain. Did you know that bestiality was legal in Kentucky until last year? In fact, there were there were even websites devoted to inviting visitors to come to Kentucky where they were legally free to have sex with animals, some even arranging some of these sites, even arranging those sexual encounters for a fee. Now, thankfully, Kentucky passed legislation to outlaw this practice finally, but I can't help ask why. On what ethical ground is this legislation based? This is not a straw man. It's a serious dilemma. Are we to condemn and deny those who have a sexual fetish for animals? Are we willing to call this a perversion of sexuality? Is this merely an animal rights issue or are we willing to say that sex with animals does not cultivate human flourishing and does not serve the common good? And if your response is how dare I bring something like bestiality into this discussion, well then you are conceding that you find this form of sexual attraction to be abnormal and perverse. If not, then affirm it. Affirm it on the same level as any other attraction. The only point I'm making here is that the notion of an all-encompassing inclusivity is illusory. Everyone has their boundaries, or all boundaries need to go. And if the revolution continues on, then that is the inevitable outcome. In fact, when you read academic literature right now uh, being published, that seeks to normalize and even affirm pedophilia, it seems that's where our own sexual revolution is heading. After all, what starts in academia never stays in academia. So who knows, perhaps the day will come when there is literally no sexual ethic and desires are affirmed and accepted no matter what. But the greater point I want to make is that even if that were the case, there is still a sexual ethic. In fact, An incredibly militant new sexual ethic is upon us, so militant that if anyone disagrees with this ethic, there is swift, severe, merciless retribution in response. It is true that Christianity has a history of Pharisaical judgment towards those who have non-traditional sexual attractions and expressions, towards the LGBTQ community. That's true. It's still true, and it's awful. These friends are marginalized at best and scorned at worst, and the church has a long, long way to go in learning how to hold to our ethics while loving our LGBTQ friends. I will be the first to admit it. There is a segment of the LGBTQ community, however, um, that is unloved by the church and unloved by our culture, and it's those who... Um, are living with unwanted desires, that is to say, those who have these attractions but don't want to have these attractions and are seeking a home where they can be affirmed. Sadly, there's no place for them in the church right now. We're, We're growing in that, but there's certainly no place in the culture for them, a culture that says you're not allowed to not want those unwanted sexual feelings. You have to embrace them and live them. But may I suggest, and this brings me to the point I'm trying to make, may I suggest that a new pharisaical righteousness has emerged. The secular West absolutely has a sexual ethic, and it is that if you don't embrace the new sexual ethic, there is literally no room for you anymore. Rhett and Link were so gracious, so charitable in their deconversion discussion. There was only one time that I could find where the tone and dialogue became militant. It was a follow-up interview with them where Rhett was discussing uh, the LGBTQ issue. And I want to play a clip for you, uh, for you to listen to how he speaks of it.
1: History is going to leave you behind. You know, you can hold out, You can get into your little crevice and hold out as long as you want to. But in the same way that we had to argue about, you know, we had to convince the church that uh, slavery was wrong. (laughs) We had to convince the church that interracial marriage was okay. Now we're having to convince the church that it's okay to be gay.
0: Now, I'm just going to leave aside this statement about the world having to convince the church that it was wrong on slavery. That's a popular talking point, but it is not historically accurate. The church had to convince the world that it was wrong on slavery, not the other way around. Again, read Holland's work on this. Slavery was a normative uh, practice of every human civilization until the Christian worldview revolutionized the world. I would be the first to admit Many Christians, many churches were very slow to join that revolution, to our utter shame. But the reality is, is that the church convinced the world that slavery is wrong. Anyway, that statement aside, did you notice his assessment of things? He says, can't you guys see that you've lost? Can't you see that history is going to leave you behind? You can get in your little crevice and hold out as long as you want to, but we're going to convince you that it's okay to be gay. Now again, from a more historical and diverse perspective, that language comes across as incredibly patronizing and uninformed, but what I'm trying to demonstrate is how radical, dare I say militant, this has become. There is no room for you unless you embrace our sexual ethic. The only place for you is to hide in your little subculture Until we eventually purge the world of people like you. And that's exactly what is taking place, friends. One wrong move, one wrong word, one non-affirming social media post, and cancel culture is coming for you. We won't lead you to the gallows, but we will banish you into exile. As I record this, J.K. Rowling is getting crushed by public opinion. And let me tell you, if Harry Potter ends up getting canceled, nothing is safe. Let me read what she said that was so controversial that it has led to so much outrage in response to an op-ed talking about uh, creating a more equitable world for people who menstruate, not women who menstruate, people who menstruate. She tweeted this, if sex isn't real... There is no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth." That statement, a statement that has been self-evident for the entirety of the planet, is now an impermissible statement in our culture. Again, emphasis being our culture. Don't you see? Sexual ethics is no longer an ethical discussion. It has become a religious discussion. This is the new religion. This is the new law. And the law is demanded of everyone with intense legalistic severity. Every time I am asked about my views on sexuality, I no longer answer the question, Without laying ground rules, I will say, I'll answer your question if you will first answer mine. Are we free to disagree? Is our culture a culture of competing ideas, or do we inhabit a society of autocratic rule that has no room for free thought? I'm willing to engage and have this discussion just as long as if you disagree with me, you're not going to turn on me and say it's not allowed to be a discussion anymore. I'm willing to love you if you disagree with me. Are you willing to do the same? And the reason I do this is that I learned long ago that this is no longer a discussion in our culture. It is a demand from our culture. Now, why is this so? How is it that a position uh, that Barack Obama himself held in his first presidential election, he, he campaigned on record saying that marriage is between one man and one woman. How is it that that has so quickly become an unacceptable position in our culture? The answer gets to the central and core ethic of sexual ethics in the West. And here's the core of sexual ethics in the West our sexual orientation is no longer a characteristic of me. It is me. I am defined by my sexual orientation. And if this is so, then it is no longer discussing ethics of sexuality. We are discussing the ethics of humanity. And yes, if sexual orientation is our core identity, if it defines us, then to not accept a sexual expression is to not accept a person. And that's why our culture is so passionate about this issue. And I don't blame them because this is they, they see it as such. Let me play you another clip. This one is from Link uh, describing a very poignant, heartfelt moment that he had uh, with an openly gay
2: friend. He gave me a hug. And I remember thinking, I, this is the first openly gay person I've ever hugged. Oh, and wow. I don't yeah. know what I know what I'm supposed to believe about this guy that I'm hugging, but this but and it was a crisis moment hmm. for me because I was like, this doesn't feel right for, for me, and let me clarify, it didn't feel right for, for me to, to render judgment of him because what I wanted to do was hug him back and actually mean it. But mm-hmm. there was—I had was, been—the belief that I was ingrained with didn't allow me to, uh, to sincerely hug the guy.
0: You can hear the anguish in his soul, and it's rooted in this. I can't hug you unless I agree with you on this issue in particular. I can sincerely hug you if I disagree with you in countless ways. But in this singular issue, I can't hug you unless I agree and support you in this. Why? Because attraction to the same sex is his identity. And if so, then I'm not truly hugging you, truly loving you, if I don't wholeheartedly affirm homosexuality because homosexuality is you. Now, by the way, this identity talk comes from the church as well. We must say, I totally sympathize with him saying that he was conditioned to judge this friend, not love this friend. The church has treated LGBTQ community not as image bearers to be loved, but as identities to judge and reject. But what if we're all wrong here? <laughs> what if we, none of us are seeing each other the way we ought to see each other? Here we come, finally, to the biblical sexual ethic. On a most foundational level, the Bible views us as image bearers of God, meaning every single person bears an inherent dignity, value, and worth. Every life is glorious because every life bears the image of God. And yet the Bible also views us as fallen image bearers, meaning every single person bears inherent flaws disorders, uh, corruption, but those things are true at once. These two things are true at once. I'm a mix of glory and dysfunction, and this applies to every part of me, my thoughts, my emotions, my actions, my ambitions, and yes, my sexuality. Sexuality is simultaneously glorious in its design and disordered by the fall. For some, that does manifest itself in more significant ways than others. But if we are going to define quote-unquote straight as sexuality perfectly aligned with God's design, well then who among us is straight? But what is so liberating about the Christian vision of identity is that I don't have to love you based upon attributes of you, whether that be sexual orientation or anything else. I simply love you. Because I love you. I'm the image of God, you're the image of God. I'm a mess, you're a mess. So, yes, let's hug and let's mean it. Now, are Christians consistent with (laughs) this worldview? No, 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 no. I wish it were so, but it's not. We have a long way to go. And so, I say again what I have said repeatedly in this podcast series I cannot commend the followers of Jesus, I can only commend the Jesus we follow. And when you look at Jesus, what we find in him is the perfect balance of I can love you and disagree with you. Nobody ever, ever questions the love of Jesus towards anybody, towards any and all sinners. But what's so interesting about Jesus is how confrontational he is. Make no mistake, he's coming for your idols. He's coming for your sins, whether that be your greed, your pride, your self-righteousness, and yes, your sex. Absolutely, Jesus sees no problem disagreeing with my sexuality, whether that be my immoral acts or even just the lusts of my heart and mind. He loves me, and he disagrees with me, and he is unrelenting in both of those pursuits. So if you want a God that does not disagree with you, if you want a God who doesn't tell you what to do with your life, with your body, with your sexuality, then of course I cannot recommend Christianity. To bring it back to the issue of goodness, if your definition of goodness, if your definition of a good God is a God that does not disagree with you, then no, Christianity is not good. But may I suggest what Tim Keller likes to say. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, then your God is you. He's right. If you want a God who never offends you, then for all intents and purposes, you want to be your own God. Rhett and Link labeled themselves as hopeful agnostics, and I take them at their word in that. They are open to the possibility of God and even hope that this is so. But for it to be so, it will necessarily mean that God is in charge and not them nor any of us. We simply can't have it both ways. Along those lines, I'm going to close this entire series with one more clip from Red. This might have been the most profound moment in all that I've heard from them. He is discussing life after his deconversion, and what does he now do with the greater questions of purpose, justice, joy, and so forth? These questions that he used to answer with Jesus, but now without Jesus, he is struggling to answer. Listen to this incredibly uh, vulnerable moment from Rat.
1: I don't think we should stop seeking those answers. I think we should just be honest about whether or not that we can know some of those answers um so I think we've got I think there's a this is a cultural this is a cultural problem that we've got to figure out like the world has got to figure this out right because I don't think that the old way of thinking is going to survive but I don't think it can be replaced with just a strictly my guess is that it just can't be replaced with a strictly naturalistic view of the world in which It's all chaos, and it's all purposeless, and we're just an accident. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that humanity can bear uh, that. Wow.
0: He literally just articulated the entire dilemma of the secular age that began this whole discussion in episode one of this series. This is the new crisis of faith, not the crisis of belief, but the crisis of unbelief. We purge our society of transcendence and then we look around at the empty void and declare now what? Now what is meaning? Now what is just? Now what is joy? Now what is true? Now what is beautiful? Now what is good? We cannot turn those questions off. We can't turn those longings off. In fact, we live to find them every day. And so Rhett says, "We're going to have to figure something else out. We can't just reject God because we don't agree with god we can't We can't just reject God and replace him with nothing. We have to find something. And it's at this point that I thought of C.s. Lewis. I will close this entire series with him. The famous line from his Narnia series is when Lewis describes the lion Aslan, who is, of course, the Jesus figure of his series. When he describes Aslan this way, he isn't safe, but he's good. You want to talk about goodness? That's Jesus. Yes, he is good. Oh my, is he good. But no, he is not safe. He is a lion who roars. And as I listen to Rhett essentially try to find What he once had in Jesus, but without the roar of Jesus. (laughs) I thought of one Aslan scene in particular. The character Jill runs into Aslan, and this is what transpires. They're in the woods, and Jill's thirsty, and she comes upon a stream, but Aslan's there. This is what transpires. Aslan says, if you are thirsty, come and drink. She realized that it was a lion speaking The voice is not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. This is our secular age, by the way. We are dying of thirst from our transcendent longings. She says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink said the lion. Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl, and as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. (laughs) So we want the water without the lion, but the lion ain't going anywhere is the point. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. "'Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come?' said Jill. "'I make no promise,' said the lion. "'Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step near. "'Do you eat girls?' she said. "'I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms,' said the lion. "'It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. "'It just said it.' Well, I dare not come and drink?' said Jill.' Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Friends, and, w- and when I say friends, I mean my deconverted friends, my skeptical friends, my seeking friends, my atheist, agnostic friends, and yes, if by some chance Rhett and Link listen I do not view you as enemies. I am sorry that some Christians have responded to you as such, but I view you as friends from afar that have brought so much life and joy into my family through your brilliant entertainment. And I hope I have done justice to your story. Forgive me where I have failed. To all my friends, there is no other stream. Only Jesus. Only Jesus and his dangerous invitation, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Thanks to everyone for listening. You, you had to be patient with me through this series. Uh, we will move on to different topics from here. But if this series has been helpful to you, um, please do share the podcast with others. Subscribe, rate, leave a review on iTunes for us. Um, th- th- this is all we ask. Um, And we will be back soon with another episode of Every Square Inch.